Look there in verses 2 to 3. He goes on to write, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So this law of marriage here that Paul appeals to in verses 2 and 3, it illustrates Paul's point or principle in verse 1. He says, if you have a married woman, she's married to this man, she is bound by the law of marriage to be faithful to her husband. So if she is married and she lives with another man, she is an adulteress. But, Paul says, if her husband dies, then her, his death releases her from that law, releases her from the law of marriage, and now she is free to give herself to another, to belong to another, to be married to another man. Now, we should just pause for a moment here. This somewhat of a sensitive subject that Paul is addressing here in verses 2 to 3 in terms of this illustration that he's using. And we should say that in particular, divorce itself is always a terribly difficult experience. And sometimes Christians will debate actually uh, what are the legitimate or biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. So That is, in what situations or circumstances can someone in good conscience divorce their spouse? Or what are the situations and circumstances in which someone in good conscience could remarry after having been married previously? And there are any number of passages in Scripture that address these issues, and sometimes Christians will debate over what are the grounds upon which someone can biblically be divorced or remarried. But no one debates this point. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach, as well as natural law affirms, that if a person is married and their spouse passes away, then of course they are free from the law and the obligation of that marriage. And they are free, if they so desire, to marry another. So even the person who takes the most conservative position on marriage and divorce and remarriage would not debate this point. Death frees a spouse from their marital obligations. Death frees a spouse from the law of marriage. And this is the point that Paul intends to establish. When one dies... They are released from the jurisdiction, from the dominion, from the authority of the law. Now notice how Paul stresses this point repeatedly in our text. Verse 2, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law having died. So this is the principle the illustration, and now we want to ask the question, well, how does this principle and this illustration apply to the Christian's relationship to the law? And that takes us to our third point, the main point, which we find in verses 4 through 6. 
Look there in chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, here's the main point. I'm going to try to summarize verses 4 to 6 and give you the main point at what Paul is thrusting at here in terms of our relationship to the law. The main point is this. We died to the law so that we might belong to Christ and serve in the Spirit. That's what Paul says in verses 4 through 6. We died to the law so that we might belong to Christ and we might serve in the Spirit. Now let's break down Paul's main point and consider each part. The first part of this main point is we died to the law. Now this is very interesting because notice that Paul's application in verse 4 does not exactly follow from his illustration in verses 2 and 3. Now track this, because you can get lost in this easily if you don't. So, So track this, okay? In the illustration, it is the husband who dies so that the wife is free to marry another. But in the application, the law which is represented by the husband, does not die. Rather, it is we who are represented by the wife who die in order that we might marry another. Did you track that? Nod yes or no. I can say it again. (laughs) Okay, let me say it one more time. In the illustration, the husband dies so that the wife is free to remarry. But in the application... The law, which is represented by the husband, does not die. The husband doesn't die. Rather, the wife dies, who represents us, so that she might marry another. Do you see how it changes? So some protest and they say, well, therefore, Paul's illustration doesn't make any sense. I mean, if we are the ones dying, then how can we marry another? How can the wife die so that she marries another? Paul's illustration doesn't make any sense because according to his illustration, we're dead. Now, some have responded to this objection by suggesting that we should not press the analogy too far. And that's a point well taken. In fact, some people say that Paul's not even intending to draw a direct parallel between the husband and the law and the wife and us. Right? He's, not, he's not trying to make that direct parallel, that direct connection. He's just appealing in the illustration to a general principle that death frees one from the law, and then he's applying that general principle to our relationship to the law. That's one way you can respond to this objection, and maybe that's true. But it seems to me that there is a much more natural solution. In the illustration, the husband dies so that the wife is free to remarry. And in the application, the law, which is represented by the husband, does not die. But rather we, 
who are represented by the wife, die in order that we might marry another. Now, how can we die and marry another? Notice the very next phrase in the verse. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that is, through his death, through union with Christ, you died to the law, so that you may belong to another, here it is, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, who is that? That's Jesus, right? Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't remain dead. Three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. Now, let me ask you this. What has been the whole point of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7? Union with Christ. Through faith in Christ, we are united with Christ in his death so that we die, but we are also united with Christ, what? in His resurrection, so that we live, so that we have life. And so if in Paul's illustration the wife represents the Christian, I see no problem with the wife dying and then marrying another. Because the wife doesn't just die. She's been raised to marry another, to marry Christ, who Himself has been raised from the dead. So notice who dies in this scenario. The law does not die. The nature of the law in that sense remains the same. It has not changed. Rather, the radical, distinctive, definite action that takes place happens in us, and it happens to us. It's not the law who dies. We die, and we are raised so that we might marry another. That's the first part of Paul's main point. We died to the law. The second part of Paul's main point is we died to the law so that we might belong to Christ. Look there in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, again, we have been united to Christ by faith. And we have been united to Christ by faith, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. And this is a point that Paul makes over and over again in these verses. So if you go back to chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says there, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or in chapter 6, verse 8, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. So, we died to the law so that now, we, having been raised from the dead, might belong to Jesus. The one who himself was raised from the dead, who has conquered death once and for all, and only knows life, eternal, everlasting life. And we, Paul says, are his Now, this is significant because Paul says that previously, we did not know life. Instead, we knew death. Look there in verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh. Now, what does it mean when we were living in the flesh? This is when we were fallen, when we were unregenerate, when we were unbelieving, unredeemed. While we were living in the flesh, notice this, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit 
for death. Now, we're going to return to this theme next week. Is it next week or the following week? Anyways, I can't remember when I'm preaching next. We're going to return to this theme next time we're in Romans chapter 7. But Paul says something shocking here in chapter 7, verse 5. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, apart from the law, or in the absence of the law, our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Rather, Paul says, by the law, or through the law, our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now that's shocking, especially because Paul was a Jewish rabbi who knew the law backwards and forwards, who'd studied the law all his life. He was a Pharisee. And so we might expect Paul to say, if you want to grow in righteousness, if you want to make progress in your sanctification, if you want to know life, then you must place yourself under the law. You must be in the law. You must wedge yourself to the law. You must be a slave to the law. But Paul says the exact opposite. Instead, Paul says, it was through the law, it was by the law, that our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And again, we're going to explore this more next week, but what Paul is saying here is that the law leads to death. And this is the condition of every man and every woman outside of Christ. But for the Christian, we are united to him who has been raised from the dead. And what is the result? Verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You see, dead things don't bear good fruit. The law couldn't bring life to our spiritually dead souls. But when through faith we were united to the resurrected living Christ, we bore fruit to God. Isn't this what Jesus says in John chapter 15 verse 5? I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. In other words, belonging results in bearing. If you belong to Christ, you will bear fruit to God. If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit for God. And here's what Paul is getting at, and this is key. And Maybe you've gotten lost a little bit in the argument that Paul's making here, but this is what Paul is really getting at. This is the key. The key to living a vibrant, fruit-bearing Christian life is not in rules and commandments, but rather in a relationship with the living, resurrected Christ. And it's as we belong to Him, it's as we abide in Him, that we experience spiritual life and bear fruit to God. The law can't provide that. We know this law exists. As I was mentioning at the opening this morning, we know this moral code, this moral law exists. But it's limited. It can't provide what is being spoken of here. And therefore we must die to the... This is what it means to die to the law. It means to die to the false hope that the law can produce the righteousness of God in us. It cannot. Only Christ can. And He will if we look to Him in faith and abide in Him. 
The law can show you what is right and wrong. The law can convict you when you go the wrong way. The law can condemn you and show you that you don't measure up to its standard. But the law has no power to change you so that you love God, truly love Him, and want to live for His glory. Only Christ revealed in the gospel and embraced by faith can bring about that kind of change in your life. John Bunyan, the uh, old Puritan pastor many years ago, wrote a little poem to capture this truth. And as we're going through Romans chapter 7, I might quote this again because it's so helpful. John Bunyan wrote this many years ago. Quote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let me say that one more time. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see, the law will come and say, run, run, but it gives you no ability to do so. It's only in the gospel, belonging to Christ, abiding in Christ, that in the power of the gospel, we're able to run and even fly and to make progress in our sanctification. So, Paul's main point, the first part is that we died to the law. The second part is that we died to the law so that we might belong to Christ. And the third part of Paul's main point is that we died to the law so that we might serve in the Spirit. Look there in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code or in the old way of the letter. Now, those words there at the beginning of verse 6, but now, they also appeared actually in chapter 6, uh, verse 22. So if you look back at chapter 6, verse 22, you see those words there, but now. And when we were studying that passage, I said those two words are beautiful words because they indicate that something dramatic, something transformative and definitive has happened in our lives and will never be the same. And when Paul used those words in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, he was saying that prior to our union with Christ, we were slaves to sin, which resulted in shame and death. And then he says, but now we've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, which results in sanctification and eternal life. Now in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, he draws a similar contrast. In chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says that prior to our union with Christ, our sinful passions conspired with the law and incited unrighteousness in us, which results in death. But now we have been released, right, from the law. We've died to the law so that we might serve God by the Spirit. Now what Paul is doing here in verse 6 is employing from the Old Testament, New Covenant language to describe our Christian conversion or our relationship to the law. So in the Old Testament, the prophets, as as the people of God lived under the law 
and sought to obey the law, but failed again and again and again. As we see, they were um, exiled. They experienced wilderness wanderings and so forth because of their disobedience to the law. And as they failed again and again and they realized that this law did not have the power to change them and transform them in the way that they desired, the prophets foretold of a day when God would establish a new covenant with his people. And this new covenant is described in several places in the Old Testament. One is in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34. The prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then the prophet Ezekiel, he also prophesies regarding this new covenant. The prophet Ezekiel says it this way. There's a number of places where Ezekiel speaks of this new covenant. But here in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, we read, this is the Lord speaking, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And this covenant is realized, it's it's obtained for us through the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, when Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples and he takes the cup, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm going to the cross to purchase all these promises for you so that they will be realized in you. The Apostle Paul speaks of this new covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as well. In 2 Corinthians 3 verses 4 and 6, Paul says it this way. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, that is the law, kills but the Spirit gives life. You see, in the old era of the law, the people of God, they had access to the law, but it was external. Moses had chiseled it on stone. The prophets had written it on parchment. But the promise of the new covenant that Christ obtained for us at the cross is that the law would not just be written on stone or written on parchment, but it would be written on our hearts. And we would be given the Spirit of God by which we would be...